Okay, thanks folks. Um, thank you all for coming in. Um, and I hope the, the film screening early this morning on the big screen was useful and at least the film is now very fresh in your mind. Um, we are welcoming back uh, Mr. Ross Huggard, who's the Assistant Chief Assessor for English. He did our revision lecture for us. He is a great favourite of us here at St. Leonard's um, and has some excellent advice. So for those of you who are writing on the film, the advice that you get today will be most useful. So pass on to you. And can I just add, thank you, that, and can I just add, if you've got questions, comments, particularly because you're in that fortuitous position that you've, it's in your head very, very recently, ask them. I want to put an overall kind of construct. Now, we everything, remember, you've got to develop your own kind of spin on this. Now, we know that this will be a significant text, but not the biggest. That's quite clear, which may be a further allure to you to write on it. Um, I want to put a case that, in many ways, this, is, this film, if you think about it, maybe 1950, just post-war, is very interested in this whole question about the role of the theatre and how appropriate we're in a theatre doing this, the theatre being a microcosm. Now, you need to, if you're not aware of that term, write it down, microcosm, you should be aware of it, the little world within a world. In theory, we look at the theatre as a mechanism for understanding the wider world and the macrocosm. But maybe Makovsky is actually saying something else, and that's kind of where I'm going to go. Now, one of the things that we need to do is consider this as film as text. So when you're writing about it, always talk about the impact on the viewer. Refer to it as a film. That, that's pretty important. Now, the first colourised film, remember this was made in 1950, was made in 1939. And it was one of, the most, one of the most expensive films ever made, Gone with the Wind. How many of you have seen it or seen a bit of it? Yeah? Um, and so I think you need to ask why this is black and white. Now, there are a number of reasons, and it's not that you need to justify it, but I think it's important to consider it. We're clearly drawn more with the black and white into expressions. Some really interesting camera work, and this film breaks a lot of rules. In particular, with Betty Davis, and by the way, she preferred to be called Betty for whatever reason, um, with a lot of the camera work on here, we see her looking old, we see lines, we even see without makeup, which breaks every rule of the book. Um, I, was, uh, I was interviewed on TV earlier this year, which was a very interesting experience. It was early in the morning, and no, they didn't use makeup. And the first thing my daughter said to me afterwards, You look so old. I said, Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Um, but it really is interesting that the coloured version would, of course, change our impact a lot. The film noir, we'll talk about the film noir, and you will have talked about that, but it is, don't just throw the term in for the sake of it, but talk about the way in which it really emphasises good versus bad. And film noir has always been used as a device to emphasise that clear juxtaposing, or if you like, I guess, some separation between good and evil, and that's certainly set up. Um... There's a lot of shadowiness and, and, and shafts of light, and you'll have picked those up. Now, I'm also interested in the way we are positioned as the viewer backstage. We go to areas um, that normally are off limits, because normally you're seeing a production, you're seeing front of house, you're seeing what you're meant to see, not what you're not meant to see. So this film actually does some other things, where we are positioned not only backstage, but even in the wings. A couple of times when we see things from point of view, for example, from Margot's point of view, where we actually look through her eyes as we look at Eve bowing with the dress, that amazing scene. 
So there are a series of scenes where we break all the rules. We see them um, rehearsing on stage when there's no one in the house. And that's kind of interesting too because, again, it suggests, it shows this is a world of artifice, A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E. You know what artifice is? What's artifice? Make-believe, where we construct something. It's not real. The music, the, uh, the score by Alfred Newman, um, and, of course, the role of Liebstraum, Love's Dream. Um, of course, it's juxtaposed, so it's used first, as you recall, in the party scene, where, where Margot's getting steadily drunk with the martinis, her martinis that need to be drier and drier and drier, and she's leaning on the, she's leaning on the poor old pianist. And I think this is a play on something else. I actually think, thank you, I think this is a play on something quite different. It's a play on um, a, bit of, um, a bit of the Humphrey Bogart moment of play it against Sam. I think there's a little bit of that going on. But, of course, she says that, and she's played it. How many times has he played it? Four. four yeah, four times. And he, he says, I played it four times. She said, play it again. So we've got this whole idea that, that she, she's kind of creating this, this dream of love has finally evaporated. Then, of course, when do we hear that again? When do we hear it played again in a different construct? When do we hear it again? In the car. On the car radio. And we hear an orchestral version. Very schmaltzy, lots of strings. And she says, I can't stand cheap sentiment. So the two are juxtaposed, aren't they? And here we have that very, very different view about how we should see it. So just be aware of it. And and it's also interesting the way one picks things up at other points. When I was watching it recently, I realised as she is actually... um, going up the stairs, the music changes to a, a song called Stormy Weather. Did you pick that up? It's actually a tune very popular in the 40s and 50s called Stormy Weather. There's some very clever little, little nuances uh, stuck in there. Structurally, it's very important because the way it sets it up is what I call a bookend text. So it starts, of course, with that the idea of the, the end point. So we've got Eve being introduced. We have Addison's voice, and we'll come back that to that in a moment, um, and of course the idea of the success, the Sarah Siddons Society. Now, as you will have picked up, the Sarah Siddons Society, the, the, the ironies of this film are strong. There was no such thing as a Sarah Siddons Society in 1950, but there was one set up after this. It does exist. And she was indeed a very famous Welsh actress, very famous for Lady Macbeth. How appropriate. Um, so there's all these connections inside there. And it is interesting that Betty Davis herself did win a Sarah Siddons Award. So there's a series of strange things that happen. That all happened after this film. But what, of course, it sets up... Remember that it freezes as she's about to get the award. Now, what, what of course, is going on here is that she is there and we are being asked the question, why is this significant? Who is this woman? Who is he? And just at that moment... And just as I... I just thought of something. It only just crossed my mind, actually, as I was saying that. Another thing that I just thought of as you're doing that, it's almost as though if we think of Eve being as an Adam and Eve and taking the apple from the tree of knowledge, I just thought of this. It's almost as though she's holding the award like it's the apple from the tree of knowledge. I just thought of that thing. You must think of something new. Um, Don't tell anyone else. Don't tell anyone else. No. Just just fell into my brain. I don't know why I thought of that then, but that's quite possible. Interesting that by the time we come back to the booking, by the time we come back to that, we, of course, see it very differently, don't we? Because we know the truth about it. Now, think about it. At the beginning, she looks all sweet and cute and, you know, very beautiful and perfectly, 
you know, her hair's perfect, everything's perfect. We look at her and think, oh, wow, she must be someone important. But as we come back, we don't think that, do we? We think very differently. And when we look at the other people, particularly at Margot, at Bill, at Karen and Lloyd, when we come back to looking at them at the end, we know what they're thinking, don't we? It's a very different set of thoughts. So it's kind of interplay with our expectations. It's a play of games. That's what's going on. Now, of course, the film noir here is, is very important, and a lot's been written about this particular scene. The fact that she has, of course, checked her wardrobe out very carefully. And, of course, Margot has noticed her. Now, one of the things is uh, that, when, that when Margot comments that she's noticed her, Eve talks about the fact, oh, she can afford standing room seats only. So she, but she does this deliberately. So she stands back here, where if you're the actress or the actor on stage, you would notice this person standing there every performance, wouldn't you? This has been calculated. <coughs> she wears something that looks appalling. That's deliberate. So everyone goes, oh, what? Dreadful fashion sense. That's deliberate. So all of this is quite there. So we have the degree of anonymity, being in the shadows, we can't see her face. The contrast between she and Karen with, of course, the mink versus the old trench coat and the ridiculous hat. And, of course, the stairs. The stairs. And it's framed, of course, just after this, with Karen being trapped under the stairs. She's never going to rise up the stairs. Whereas, of course, on the other side, Eve is looking at the stairs going, that's where I'm going. I'm going up the ladder to success. It's a ladder of success, isn't it? Karen is, is taken in, and of course it's important with Karen, one of the things you know, notice with Karen is you never see her with anything out of place, do you? The hair, the clothing, very big on, on uh, pearls and necklaces and things, it's all in place. And Eve, of course, here looks incredibly different. Also their age difference, you've got a woman who clearly worries about her makeup a great deal, who's 40, and another woman who's 26 who's not so worried about it at all pretty obviously. We've got that real contrast. Also, the camera emphasises the height difference. You know, she looks kind of like the waif, like she looks a bit like she needs a good square meal. All of that's really been emphasised a great deal. Um, and, of course, for Karen, um, Eve's an opportunity, an opportunity to do something because her life doesn't have many opportunities, it seems. All right. My line for this is that if you think of Shakespeare, in most of his plays, he favoured this idea of a, a play within a play. He used it in a number of plays. And it's a motif. It's a symbol. Um, the idea of the theatre. And again, that comes back to that microcosm we talked about before. It's a Hollywood film. Yes, that's true. But Makovic really loved the world of the theatre. And he saw it, interestingly, as being a superior, superior thing. He thought that it was actually preferable. And so... The decision which was radical, because what they had to do was they had to time it that there was no production in the theatre, in this current theatre. So they only had a week. They had a week to make the film in there, which is quite, quite a tight period, because if they messed any scenes up, they couldn't go back very easily. So it's actually filmed there. So we've got that sense of authenticity. Um, one of the tensions that is being explored, and it's repeated through the film, is the idea that the theatre is a superior world to the world of Hollywood. And Hollywood is kind of a poor option. Do you recall what's the bottom of the ladder? What's even lower than Hollywood? Addison says this. Television. That, that's, even, that's even one peg down that uh, she might get a job in television because she's not really good for anything else. 
except for looking sexy and cute, which is her idea. We're aware that characters are playing other characters, uh, and I guess this, this, for me, sets up one of the questions that the, the play, that the film's exploring, that we see in the world theatre, that people play roles so often they don't know who they are. And that becomes Margot's central concern. She has two concerns, and that's one of them. Who is Margot Channing? Who is the real Margot Channing? You know, who, who is she? And that certainly is set up very much. Does the theatre reflect the world? Now, think about it. We use terms like the, uh, the theatre should be a slice of life. It should, represent, it should be a representation. And if you look at any, uh, any great theatre writers, particularly people like Brecht and others, they would say that it's important that the big idea is that people go away thinking. My question is, does this enable a willing suspension of disbelief? Or are these people actually locked into this world thinking it is the real world? It is a replacement world. That's a question you need to think about. Is this a replacement world? Addison notes that these people's homes is in the world of the theatre, that they belong in the world of the theatre, and that that is their natural habitat. He actually uses that term, habitat, like they're a separate species or a separate race. And that's worth thinking about the extent to which they, this is kind of a, a separate world. Now, that's one of the reasons that the film opens where it does, in the Sarah Sidden Society. It really is ironic doing this, saying this in this place. It is really. Because, like here, there's no outside light, is there? Heavy curtains, heavy drapes. And it has the feelings, that the trappings of an older world. If you notice, it has um, aspidistras, plants on stands. It has heavy wooden pillars. And it has these incredibly ancient-looking actors who look like they're ready to keel over. They're old thespians. You know the term thespian? You know, people who go on stage, they're thespians. It's used a number of times. Addison uses it. Um, and they, they are in this introspective world. And they look longingly at the great new star as they look at the other stars. Notice they, the other big applause is for Margot, notice. She gets very big applause because she's one of their greats. And her painting will be up there. And, of course, the painting we see on the wall behind to the slight is we're looking on site to the right is Sarah Siddons. That same painting appears it's on Margot's stairs. Here's a couple of times. It's the same painting, Sarah Sidney's. Did you all pick that up? No, yeah. So, a lot of commentators have talked about the fact that Margot and Eve actually do not have normal kind of domestic clutter. If you think about it, at homes, and I don't care how neatly your mother keeps your house, we always end up with clutter of some kind, which is part of whether it's part of things we've been given or we've bought or from trips overseas, or from somewhere interstate, or whatever it is, there are things we acquire. Their homes do not. They almost look like a set, and that's the comic many have made. Indeed, it's interesting because um, if you look in Lloyd and Karen's um, apartment, did you notice the way that you go up? It's, it's, it's actually a spiral staircase. It's kind of interesting. <coughs> you were, do you climb the staircase or do you stay below? It's kind of that, that view. It's picked up a number of times. Stairs become really important. They're a repeated image that we get. Now, there are lots of comments. And now, at the bottom, I've just put um, a couple of quotations that I think you should sort of reflect on. Um, in As You Like It, Shakespeare makes the comment, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players on it. 
And indeed, that is the view that is presented very much. You know, who belongs on this stage. Do you notice some of the people who never actually tread the boards? And one of them, of course, uh, one of them is Max. Max Fabian doesn't, does he? He never goes on stage. You never see him there. He's always on the other side because he's a producer. There's separation. Bill Lowe, as the director, we see him on stage. Lloyd we see on stage. Not Karen. Karen's backstage or side stage or front stage. See what I mean? There's this kind of inclusion-exclusion. Um, the, uh, the line by, um, in the great uh, soliloquy by Macbeth, this is Macbeth's um, great soliloquy, and he talks about it being a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. He talks about us coming onto a stage of life. It's the same image. So think about some of these comments that Bill makes. You know, the theatre is a flea circus. You know, if you think about flea circuses, you, you train a flea to jump on cue. That's an interesting way of seeing it. Wherever there is magic, make believe in an audience, there's theatre. And here we've got this idea that it is a construct. It's kind of, it's a fraud. It's a fake. It's not real. It's not to be trusted. It's not reliable. All of that's picked up. Lloyd says that Margot compensates for underplaying on stage by overplaying reality. Does Margot overplay reality? The word you might use is histrionics. Histrionic, H-I-S-T-R-O-N-I-C-S. Histrionics, where she is always kind of over the top. I think that the, the scene that I love, Margot, that, that she plays so well, is when Addison has tipped her off that, of course, the new understudy is, guess what, Eve. And, of course, she's in the foyer. And she sweeps into the theatre with her mink and Max is sitting there, and what does she do with the mink? She sweeps it over his face as if to say, you're a nothing, you're a noble. So it's a very nice gesture. She knows exactly what you... By the time she's got on stage, everyone knows she's in the room. And when she gets on stage, she plays it beautifully. She pretends she doesn't know, you know she, that she's ready for the reading. You look in that scene, her makeup is extraordinary. It's really, really careful. She's made herself look... She, she knows exactly what she's doing. She's quite calculating. Actors' greatest attraction to the public is their complete lack of resemblance to normal human beings. So is that what the message of this is, that they are a breed apart, as Addison says, and they're not actually normal? They're abnormal, or are they subnormal? Or are they a different race or a different species, which is repeatedly picked up? We're a breed apart from estimating we theatre folk, the original displaced personality. Now, the we is interesting, isn't it? He's part of that world, and he says that quite directly. Displaced personality. What's a displaced personality? What's that mean? Displaced personality. Displaced from what? Or from where? Or from whom? What do you reckon? What's displacement? Yeah, like different from ordinary society. So it's kind of like these people are kind of, they're like freaks in the freak show. And they don't belong in the normal world. So this, this kind of supports the view that this is a self-contained world. A world that's a separate world from the rest of the world. That's kind of the way it's said. So that, um, that self-contained world, and of course you can see Sarah Siddons' portrait, which is directly behind Eve. Slightly to her right, the portrait's sitting down. She's actually... She's actually been painted as a muse, as an NUSE. 
as the great muse, you know, that you should get inspiration from, the great theatrical muse. Um, and uh, a couple of other portraits apparently are identifiable along the way. Also, we're aware that Eve is about a quarter of the age of anyone else at that front table, aren't we? She looks very young. So we've got this idea of youth. She's kind of the youthy element. And we've also got the formality of the scene, um, that everyone is waiting. Our eye is also drawn to the left where those flowers are because there's only one to be given out, one award, the big one. This is like the, the big Academy Award, isn't it? The big Logan. That's the way it's set up. One of the things is that's interesting that at the beginning, when we see um, what she's been playing in Aged in Wood, we're aware that Margot is actually taking on an extraordinary role. The role of the little old southern bow. The little old southern bow is, of course, of course, playing innocent and sweet, but she's not. So this is kind of interesting. And this is a bit of a metaphor for what goes on, isn't it? Because they're all playing little sweet people. She's not little and sweet, nor is he. But Eve is playing that same role, isn't she? It's kind of people playing roles that they're not. So they strip away everything along the way. We see the wig with the curls. You know, she complains to Bertie that the corset's too tight. Bertie's ordered the wrong size. No, actually, she's put a bit of weight on. So we've got all of those kinds of things along the way. So we're aware, and we watch, and this is a very unusual scene. If you think about it, there are very few films or TV series where you actually see an actor or an actress rip off, you know, eyelashes, wig, we see the taped hair, the gown, and then she's slathered in cold cream. It's hardly a flattering moment. She's stripped bare. This is the bare Margot, as it were. And then we get that whole bemoaning, who is Margot Channing? So one of the things we've got to ask is, if people are playing roles all the time, and they're playing roles to their colleagues, to their other thespian colleagues, do they lose their identity? Are they unsure of who they are? Is this a cost of the world of the theatre? That's the question. Because we move into this world, in this false world, we're getting, I guess, representations of another world. Now, they're very complex relationships, aren't they? Birdie, who is aptly named, isn't she? Because she sticks her nose and her beak into all sorts of places. Um, the wardrobe assistants backstage, the playwright, the director, the producer. And you're all clear what a producer does. What does a producer actually do? What do they really do? What do they do? Quick money, yeah. They get the money together, get the production, get the venue, get everyone together. They get, they get the way with all. They've got nothing. They're often artistically useless. They often don't know about art, artistic. They just know what sells. They really don't know. Um, so that's kind of the way he sits. The understudy, the actor... And we, of course, even get those who use the casting couch, Miss Caswell. Of course, this was uh, Marilyn Monroe's first role. And the critic. We've got a very complex world of people who are, I guess, entwined. Each one of them is they're mutually dependent. And that's important. Karen, though, of course, is not in there, is she? She's not part of that world of dependency. She's outside. She's the alien. She's the interloper. And she feels it. And she knows it. That's part of her story. It's part of the story. And, the, and Eve's comment about that, that acting role, and it's a not, I think it's a very clever line. Now, you know that Mark Vince wrote the whole script, and you know that, uh, very unusually, this is one of the few films ever that Betty Davis didn't change the script. She was renowned for changing scripts, but going, no, 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 I'm not saying that, and she changed it. 
And in this case, she did not change one line. There's a lot that we know about this. She herself said this on many occasions. She said this was a perfect script. She didn't want to change it. Interesting, interesting. This idea of you can breathe a car to its magic perfume. Now, for those of you, and I've done a fair bit of stage work in my day, I find this particularly interesting because when you're on stage on any major production and using grease paint, grease paint has a really distinctive smell. How many have been on stage? Um, grease paint's got a really distinctive smell. And costumes do too. They always smell, smell a bit sort of mouldy and rather horrible. It's kind of an interesting world. It is a world. But there's no doubt that that relationship and as she says later, the applause, which is like love coming out of footlights, is extraordinary. It energises you, absolutely. Um, if I can use this analogy, I've sung in um, some large choirs with Melbourne Symphony. And can I say, if you're singing with about 110 people and you're singing to a house, and I've sung to a house that is 8,000, you stand and it's like this wave coming over you. It's really emotional. It's extraordinary. That's what she's talking about. That's exactly what she's talking about. So this is, of course, what Eve tells us she wants and she's going to get. You must look at that scene really closely on the stairs. It's the first time we see Eve drop, drop the guise a bit. She actually makes some real comments here. The face changes, the camera picks up, her eyes have changed, face. And then she says, oh, I'm babbling, and she just goes back into this meek little quiet world. She's playing when we first think, wait a minute, there's something going on here. Is this connection illusory? Is it transitory? Here they gone tomorrow. Do you recall that Addison describes um, Margot as a true star of great stuff? And he doesn't ever challenge that. He does, it's not sarcastic, it's quite serious. But Eve, the film tells us, Eve is expendable. Now there's not a little irony attached to this because Annie Baxter, who played Eve, most of you will never have heard of. But Betty Davis, most people but any idea of film will have heard of her. She certainly made her mark. She's one of the great Hollywood greats. So it's kind of ironic that that's the, the truth. Addison does talk about the role or the power that he has and what he can do. I think you need to be aware that critics do have a huge role. They can destroy a play. Um, and they can really push a run. And even if you think who reads them, people do. And it does seem to have a huge influence. Um, what will they do with that Margaret and David, one might argue? Um, because if you notice on any major film, if they've sent something positive, they will always quote it. It sells. It sells. There's no doubt about it. It's interesting that each one of them recognised Addison, as his name suggests, adds on power. Because that's what he does. Think about his name. He adds power, doesn't he? For me, Addison is a serpent. Is that your read? Yeah, I think he's an absolute serpent. And what he does is like any serpent. Now, if you think of the Harry Potter films, and if you think of the serpent there, you'll know what I mean. The way it sidles up and talks in the ear. It's kind of that serpent-like quality. He is serpent-like because of his manner. The Saracen society is not something you might have heard of. It's that snide, sort of uh, sardonic, sarcastic kind of comment that makes you feel slightly uncomfortable. And it's deliberate. That's why he got the role, of course. He, of course, is clear that he knows 
everything that is there to know. So when Eve is turned down by Bill, he says, I'm somebody. In other words, I can help you. I can create something for you. It's quite clear. He appears, even when not invited. Recall Margot says she was, he was struck off the list, but he's there because he knows it's on you, sir. He doesn't get an invitation, that's the point. He just arrives. He's going to be thrown out, but that's the way he works. I don't know if you know this, but critics like he, what they always do in any opening night, there are seats left vacant for critics. And they always have a particular seat. You aware of that? They always have one seat in, in whatever theatre it is. And no one would dare sit in it. And they just arrive, and often, some of them are notorious for arriving late, but they arrive, but no one would dare question whose seat that is. They don't even have a ticket. They just arrive. So that's kind of his world. Addison's that kind of person. He is essential to the world of the theatre. That's the point that's been picked up. And he knows that he just does these things. So for me, Addison adds on and adds up. He adds up all the elements. And he represents, I guess, that, that next kind of view about um, the power of the media, which we can see very, very strongly. Why that did that? Hang on, just push down. Let's go back. Thank you. All right. We've also got that connection between the um, actor and the audience, and the sorry, the actor and the audience. What is the relationship between them? How do they see them? Now, it's interesting that if you think about it, you know, you go into a theatre, you come into your production, the lights go down, you know what you're about to see is fake, but you allow yourself to be seduced by that fake world. That's the point. That's the willing suspension of disbelief, isn't it? We're putting. We're being manipulated. So, and we see this in very interesting ways. There are some really interesting moments. For example, when they're busy taking bows, Margot on stage in Aged in Wood early on, and she's bowing. And then um, the, 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 the main, the curtains come down, they're waiting. Of course, everyone's waiting for her to come forward for her, her, big, her big bow. And she bows, and they all go crazy. And then she waits, and then she goes back, she has a few of those, and then we hear her being asked, do you want another one? She says, no, that's enough. So she just kind of pulls them. They're, they're just putty in her hands. They're all, you know, collapsing at the, at the mere thought that Margot Channing, she's just amazing, isn't she? And you can kind of see it. So the thing is, is this reflecting the real world, or is it an alternative reality? Is it a new world, another kind of world that's put aside, which is what I'm trying to, I guess, argue? And therefore, are the relationships in this world fraudulent? Are they dishonest? Are they not to be trusted? And like the Sarah Sitton Society, are they a construct, not a reality? That's the question for me. Now, Eve herself is the outsider at the beginning. She is allied to Karen at the beginning because she too is an outsider, isn't she? She's on the other side, not on that side. And so she, of course has been taken in and wants part of that, that world, quite clearly. So she's drawn to the forbidden fruit. And for her, the forbidden fruit is, of course, to get an award, but to get into that world. And she knows she has to go in the stage door. Now, just think about it. It's a huge difference. Um, stage doors are always interesting because they're usually grotty and horrible and usually look a bit tacky. And you're going, but you're going through the other side. Or are you going in through the main entrance, which always looks all glamorous and cute? 
Because one side has the furs, the other side has the, the basic clothing. That's kind of the way it works, doesn't it? So we've got to think about how that operates. That, uh, that scene that I alluded to before with Eve holding the costume and bowing is, of course, emblematic. This, if I had the costume on, if I had all the makeup on, they would think I was wonderful and I would get the applause. That's the comment. Very importantly, when we see Eve in Margot's costume, that one moment, she looks just like her. She looks so like her, I think you can't tell the difference. And quite clearly, they worked very hard to make that look absolutely as if you could be mistaken for thinking, isn't that Margot Channing or is it Eve Harrington? That's intended wrong way. This is an example of what I was talking about before, the way the camera positions us. So here we are behind, looking over Margot's shoulder. Now look at what we're looking at. Margot just with, with a kind of a, just a basic coat on her, um, just, you know, with underwear underneath, and there she's got a taped hair to put the wig on, and there is Eve, and look at her face, look at her looking upwards. And we've also got another thing that is used throughout this film, mirrors. There are mirrors used all over the place. Look at what she's looking at. She's looking on stage, but there's also a mirror in front of her. This is the image she wants to present. Um, and if Margot were listening to herself, she should have picked up earlier that, in fact, there's something else going on here. Absolutely. So, Eve uses all the skills that she has observed to play backstage. Not on stage, but backstage. The role of the innocent, the naive, besotted with, with Margot. Now, I think it's interesting that Margot has had people like this before. She makes it clear because Bertie says, give her the old heave ho. And she's about to be told to get Ross. And, that's, and Bertie has no compunctions that she would do that in that, that kind of setting. Bertie is the one who is totally loyal, not just to Margot, but to Bill, isn't she? Totally loyal. Her loyalty is never challenged. She isn't, it's not for her. Even when Margot snaps at her, mind you, she can snap back, she deals with it. That's okay. They understand why As if she's been studying Margot. She's very astute. Eve, of course, knows who the weak link is. The weak link is Karen. Because Karen's the outsider. Karen's the one who's there. I'm nobody, I'm just the director's wife, she says. So, again, you've got role playing. And we've also got the fact that maybe these actors are not very good at picking up where the roles are being played and what's going on. Eve, I guess later on, seeks to seduce Lloyd. Um, and Lloyd, of course, uh, Lloyd himself is rather gullible, isn't he? He's rather stupid, I think. And one of the things about... He's not presented very favourably. Um, and uh, we get he's got a couple of great lines, but he's presented as being fairly weak and fairly ineffectual. In fact, I would argue it's really interesting the way that males are presented. The way that males are presented is as interesting as the way females are in this film, uh, would be my view. The only force we can over overshadow her performance is Addison. He sees through her. It is he who checks the veracity of her story and finds out she's a liar. It's he who picks up and deliberately sets her up with a trap, talking about the Schubert Theatre in San Francisco. It's a lovely old theatre. Because he knows there isn't one there. That's why he, he's testing. In fact, she's a liar. So he does his homework. He finds out what a real name is. He finds out all about her. He does that quite deliberately. He knows exactly what he's doing. And, of course, her real name is 
what? Which is the name of Hamlet's mother. That's the connection. Hamlet's mother. Um, and you remember there's that reference to, to like she's Hamlet's mother. Um, and Hamlet and his mo- Hamlet tries to seduce his own mother. It's part of a ploy because his mother has married his, uh, married his uncle after he was killed. So there's, there's some peculiar connections going on here. Little connections going on. He, of course, understands the brutality of what's going on. And he understands that they are... You remember he describes them killer to killer? And he kind of sets up... He understands... He's read her really carefully. He's not taken in by any of this. That's why I would stress he does say of Margot, she's, she's a true star of great stuff. She's kind of different. Eve represents someone very talented, but someone of a different ilk entirely. So if you think about it, the serpent needs Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because that's the way the corruption must work. So without the two of them, they can't operate very effectively. It's subterfuge. That's what it is, subterfuge. Now, of course, look at the way this is juxtaposed. You can look at the use of mirrors. Our first impressions of Margot actually are through the mirror, aren't they? And we see her. Now, she's quite self-contained, quite composed. She's not fussed. She might be covered in cold but she doesn't care. So she doesn't need to conceal anything, you see. She's not worried. However, Eve is totally... Now, what does Eve do? She makes sure that the focus, which at the beginning of that scene is on Margot and the mirror, does a U-turn over the back corner, significantly with plumbing and all of the things that don't look glamorous, with this very, very concealed figure. Now, you've got to ask this question. Why does she take her gloves off? Why does she take her hat off? Why is she still so... Because, of course, this is part of the, the image, isn't it? Concealment, not revelation. We notice as soon as Karen comes in, she throws off her mink and kind of divests herself, doesn't she? Eve doesn't. Eve keeps <coughs> concealed and compressed. That's what she does. And interestingly, the only person standing... Now, Bertie could have propped or sat, but she stands, doesn't she? The rest of them all go. And then, we, and of course, we get Karen... Tell us more, Amy. You know, with a cutesy little kind of thing. That's kind of the way that that works in that scene, very much. Okay. The shifting narrative. The narrative, of course, shifts. And this is one of the things... You could get a question that looks at narrative. And you need to think about how the narrative works. It certainly uses... Um, it uses some interesting techniques. So it starts with voiceovers. Now, whether you see them... I, I personally see a lot of voiceovers as being not just not just a commentary, so in a kind of way, if you use Shakespearean terms, they're like a science to the action, but they're also soliloquies. What's a soliloquy again? What's a soliloquy? The inner inner workings of someone's mind. So we do get soliloquies as well, and it shifts. It shifts. So we open and end with Addison, very importantly. We hear Karen, and we hear Margot. But do you know we never hear Eve? That's not a coincidence, is it? She's so busy concealing that I think she perhaps is not even honest with herself about what she does. This is a deliberate ploy among this in terms of why we don't even hear her at any point. What you do here, though, 
in the confrontation scene with Addison, we hear Gertrude's voice. And if you listen, the voice changes. Where she really becomes quite like a gutter sign. She sounds quite brazen, harsh, and not sweet and cutesy. There's a real change in tone. And I think you could argue that that's the other version of her along the way. We've got to think about this being set or made in 1950, so only five years after the end of World War II, and I guess roles for women. I think, you know, that's where this film has dated and where it's a little bit challenging. I don't think any of us would argue the toss on that one. It also shows women's role within the theatre and, of course, outside. Now, you've got to remember also that if we turn the clock back to the 19th century, women going on the stage always meant they were loose moral. And there was always this, the expression, don't ever let your daughter go up on the stage, because if you do, she'll lose more than, uh, she'll lose more than just her looks. The whole idea that your morality, you know, your, your own perfection would be threatened. There are only two legitimate occupations for women. What were they? Two legitimate occupations. What were they? Well, they're apart from your housewife, as in paid employment. As in paid employment. Only two. Nurse and... Not a secretary, no a teacher. The secretary was a bit down market. That was considered a bit unfortunate. But they were the two proper professions. It is true that women went into office work, but that was, that, was kind of an, that was kind of viewed as an unfortunate. But they were considered legitimate. But the stage, oh no, oh no. And remember, in Shakespeare's time, all the female roles were played by men. Boys. So you've got to think about that. Now, the, the suspicion about the morality is kind of borne out by Miss Caswell and Eve, isn't it? They're not very nice people, and they use their feminine wiles to get what they want. Obviously, Miss Caswell, as a figure, and it's interesting we don't know her name, the first name, but she's presented in this particular way that, she, that she's this image. She's this kind of image. And, she, and really, who she is doesn't matter. She's just meant to be looks on legs. That's all she's meant to be. And she's meant to go there. And do you like Addison? Go and do yourself some good and go and talk to Max, Mr. Fabian. Do yourself some good. What a line. Um... And, uh, and the whole impressions. Eve, meanwhile, presents this very, very negative view. So it's interesting the way it's presented. This great line of, uh, of uh, Margot's, which I hope you've committed to Mary, it's one you have to know, I think. Funny business of a woman's career, the things you drop on the way up the ladder so you can move faster, you'll forget you'll need them again when you get back to being a woman. The idea that, you know, you had to be the cutthroat difficult kind of person or, you know, it just, wouldn't, it just wasn't worthwhile. Um, that's an interesting kind of view, isn't it? And I think it's an interesting view that you've got, you have two careers. So your comment's right in the sense that the other career for women is being a housewife and a mother, and that's considered the, the other career. You should also be aware that until 19... I don't know the exact year, but about 1971... In Victoria, you could not be a woman and be married in a permanent teaching role in a Victorian government school. You had to be unmarried. You became married, you could do the job on half pay, and that was a temporary job, but not as a permanent job. Until 1971, or thereabouts, till 1970s. So that's a surprise, isn't it? And they were, the actual, they were actually the rules. There were other places that had rules like that. There was a real glass ceiling. So we've got to understand that, that this reflects that. 
Without, if you take Addison out of the picture for a minute, most of what happens is generated by females in the film, isn't it? Actually, work through the, the way the events work. It's women who drive the action, which is kind of interesting. So there's a kind of female dominance. And I think the film is certainly arguing that in this world, it's the women who seem to drive so much of what happens. Obviously, obviously, um, the, the women in this film seem to work one way, and you wonder what Mark Levisk is actually saying about the role of women. Is he saying what Margot's saying? Now, think about what Margot ultimately does. Margot gets married, but is she going to continue acting, yes or no? Yes, she is. I don't agree. She's, she says she's not going to play roles that are too young for her. She doesn't say she's not going to play anymore. She says, I'm not going to play roles that are too old for me, like uh, Cora. But she says, she doesn't, she says, I'm not. And she, do, and she says, I'm going to play, but then I'm going to come home. So she's going to limit what she has. I don't think she says she's not going to act. That's not what I hear her say. But she says she's not going to play roles that are too old. But her primary role, the focal role, is going to be that of the housewife and the wife. So you might want to think about how that sits. Margot knows that for a woman to be an actress, she makes sacrifices. That success is not instantaneous. She knows that. And she certainly sets up that idea that the world where she's most at home is backstage and on stage. It's not at home. However, the way that the camera presents her, she is feminine. And the use of her hair is definitely an agent that, that kind of does that. Whether you think, you know, I think Betty Davis wouldn't call her beauty, but she's got a, a face she kind of look at and think about, and that's the way she is. She knows that she's made sacrifices. And there is an irony, there is an irony. All the machinations and the evil that Eve, um, I guess, creates does, does force her to consider what is important in her life. Look at the car scene. She's unaware of what's going on, really, with Eve. But what's important now, she's actually had time to reflect on what values are important to her, what's actually significant to her. And so that idea, married means I've finally got a life to live, she says. I don't have to play parts into a life to live. So has she not lived thus far? Is, is that the implication? Eve. What if she believes is the only way she can get fame is on stage? What she uses is every standard feminine trick, doesn't she? Batting her eyelids, making sure there's plenty of flesh to see, wrapped around a towel outside her door, saying, oh, I'm just in the shower. Trying to make a play for build, all of those other things. So what, of course, this is, is we realise for Eve, that is the construct Eve, alias Gertrude, what actually is important is a career and success. That will define who she is. Surely, surely, this is a comment about the world of the theatre and the world of stage and of Hollywood. If people can create new, new sense of who they are, I was looking at a documentary recently just by chance on Rock Hudson, and I was thinking how you know people create these images, these these whole fraudulent views, which are completely opposite to what their real lives are. That's the and if she's eaten um, of the tree of knowledge, she actually ends up being completely consumed by it. She's destroyed. She's thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Karen, 
Karen, of course, is the woman who's different. She's the outsider, but she's also the educated one. She's the one who comes from wealth and affluence. Her parents are rich, and she's been born and bred to it. And that's, of course, um, why she's presented as she does, with her jewellery, with her clothing, with a very clear idea. Um, Radcliffe, which is the other half of Harvard, um, think her parents are very rich and influential. So she, remember, has met Lloyd there when he was teaching creative writing. And she reminds me, I have to say, in a very negative kind of way, of a group of women I remember when I did my first degree at Monash. Um, and these were, these were girls of my own age at that time. And I remember by second semester, they were all wandering around with, with engagement rings on, kind of like this. And I remember saying one of the girls I knew quite well, was a really intelligent girl, and I said to her, well, what's that got to do with anything? You know, I know, oh, she said, now I've got what I really need. I've got my man. And she was serious. And I thought to myself, you really think that that's going to do, you know, your life's going to be wonderful because you've got the man and you've got the ring and you've got all the other trappings? But that's Karen, isn't it? That's what she's done. She sold everything the other way and she's got nothing. I'm just the playwright's wife. It's kind of interesting. Bertie. Bertie's a great figure because she's a stage trooper. And Thelma Rita, what a voice, you know. She has class, doesn't it? Um, but, of course, what she knows is you don't trust other women with stories. You don't trust them because they've got to work for what they get. She's been a vaudevillian. Now, remember, vaudevillians had to work really hard to make a go of it. Vaudeville's a kind of dying art form. There used to be theatre in Melbourne called Tivoli, T-I-V-O-L-I, no longer there, where they used to have these shows. So the way these shows worked, they were very popular in England, they're an English idea, was they were a series of little acts, little performance, and they, they were all a series of actors, sort of like a variety show is the best way of describing it, where they do all sorts of things, and you go along, and they were kind of a hoot, a bit of a laugh, a bit of fun, a bit of singing, a bit of magic, a bit of flesh, you name it, it was all kind of there, but no continuity, it wasn't one organised show. That's what she's been. Remember she talks about that she closed the second half, you know, and you know I did. So there's that whole idea. She, of course, believes in hard work. And she knows Margot has worked hard to get where she is. She's talented, but she's worked. And she admires her. And she admires people like that. For her, they're not, they're not besotted with anything. And nor is Margot besotted with her own self-importance. She just knows that's who she is. Bernie, therefore, represents someone who picks a way to get the truth, doesn't she? She finds the truth every time. Miss Caswell, the, the dumb blonde. What has she got? Sexual allure, flesh. That's what she's got. And, you know, batting eyelids and playing dumb. Or is she dumb? Kind of, that's the point. We don't care. Why is she with Addison? I'm sure she's not looking at his stamp collections. And, of course, Addison's her means to get somewhere. And so is anywhere else. She understands that's what you do. So she really alludes... To, this is a, a Hollywood dig at a Hollywood idea... The casting couch, isn't it? After all, that's where she's going to end up, we assume, or in TV. Now, it's kind of interesting to, uh, to look at Margot. Now, I, I just point out that the, there are a whole lot of things that are really interesting. Of course, when we first see Karen outside the theatre, what do we see? Margot Channing in Aged in Wood. Her name is in lights. Everyone knows. In other words, if Margot Channing's in it, what would an audience assume? Is it going to be good or not? Be good, because she's a great actress. 
So in other words, if she chooses to be in the play, it'll be good. Yeah, go and enjoy that. People have, she, she's famous, she sells. Okay? But think of, think of the, the title, Aged in Wood. Is that what she is, Aged in Wood? A bit old. Or Footsteps in the Ceiling, and I think that's deliberate too. The ceiling, the glass ceiling, maybe? There's, there's a few suggestions there. A, true, a great star, a true star. She's certainly confident in who she is. Now, I think you have to ask the question, does she open as the femme fatale? You talked about that concept, femme fatale. So the femme fatale is, is the dangerous woman. Femme, the French word for woman. So the dangerous woman who gets the man, manipulates and then gets what she wants. Because you could argue that she starts as the femme fatale, but Eve takes that role over. That's one way of saying She knows she's a great star. She doesn't have to worry about it, does she? She, she kind of knows. And I don't think it's arrogance. It's a confidence. It's confidence in who she is. She knows about the world of theatre. She knows how it works. She understands. She doesn't worry about the makeup or anything else. And she trusts Bertie. Now, they might snap at one another... But they're almost like a mother and a daughter, aren't they? They kind of snap away. But they understand one another. There's no malice. And at the end of that, she says, I'll see you at home. And notice how she treats Bill. Clearly, she's very comfortable in that world. She understands that each part of the world operates together. So when Bertie reminds her that Eve can't take the costume out, well, it's Eve's reason to take the costume is rather different. You've got to leave it, leave it for the wardrobe mistress... Union, of course, Margot goes to retrieve the costume. She knows she's right. I think the thing about Betty Davidson using her at this age, remember she was 41 when this film was made, um, so she was actually playing the right part, which is kind of interesting, um, is that she doesn't try and dazzle. She doesn't, but her presence probably dazzles by her face and her manner. So now her cigarette smoking. Um, and that certainly comes up. Of course, her great line, the line really sums up her as this, that's a fun fatale line. Yeah, fast you said, folks, it's going to be a bumpy night. Now, when you look at this, the scenes with her, it's really interesting. The use of stairs in her apartment. Now, that dress by Edith Head's very famous dress. It's a famous dress because it didn't fit her. When it was measured, it was, it was supposed to fit so that it came right up. It didn't fit. They didn't have time doing about it, and she said, Oh, don't worry, and she slipped it down. So she actually wore it as it was not intended, but it probably was more seductive, so it suits her role better, I don't know. You see Sarah Siddons painting straight behind her? It's right up there on the stairs. We, of course, see her in various situations where we see her quite adamant, quite quite feisty with Bill. Do you notice that? And that's where she does play that fun fatale even with him. Um, later on, with Bertie, with Bertie warning her, about Eve studying her. And of course here, where the roles are reversed, where he pins her down and, and you know, and she's desperate to have him reaffirm his love. She's feeling utterly threatened by the younger woman. Your talented, famous, wealthy people want to see you night after night, even in the wind and the rain. I think that... that uh, Eve understands exactly what she wants. That's what she wants. She wants people queuing up outside just to get a chance to get to see this woman. Clearly, Margot is worried. She mentions her age a number of times early on in the, in the, the uh, dressing room, so it's clearly worrying. 
you know, a, a lover eight years, lover than eight years younger, is clearly a worry. Um, and that comment, you know what I think of that age obsession of yours. Now, he was eight years younger, and I have to say, I don't think Gary Merrill looks it, but anyway, it's interesting. Um, of course, Eve, Eve is the device that brings out all of Margot's insecurity as a woman. That's why those comments about a woman are made. So I would argue that front fatale sort of veneer is stripped away and Margot feels more and more vulnerable along the way. I love the, uh, the way in which Bill is loyal to Margot and says, have you heard? I love Margot. I'm in love with Margot. Um, and when she goes back to the commission, she describes him as groom. You know what I'm going to be, a married lady. It's an odd line, isn't it? Calling him groom. Remember that, that set-up with Karen and Lloyd being there, their closest friends, to let them know she's finally said yes. Remember, he's asked her at least four times before this. So this has been the end point. She, of course, changes to play roles that aren't too young. What we do sense is Margot has changed, and I think it's not a little ironic that Eve has brought that about. So if you like, Eve has enabled something positive, and when we think about characterisation, we need to think about the changes we see in Margot. There are a lot of changes. She can call her Eve, Eve, Little Miss Evil. Great, isn't it? It's a great line. Uh, but she's also reminding us that this, the world of the stage is cutthroat. You know, and this is where, I guess, um, fact is stranger than fiction, because if you think about it, it was only an accident that Betty Davis ever got this wrong. And most people would say this is probably one of the three greatest ever acting roles. So when we come back to full circle, back at the bookend, we come back to the dinner, we actually see a very different kind of person. I don't think in any way that we look at Margot's face, is she jealous of it? No way. She's aware of her heartlessness, the fact that she is ruthless, and that faster you rise, the quicker you rise, the harder you fall. She knows that. <clears throat> the ladder that she's climbed, that she's stepped on people to get to, it will not hold her up. And I think there's a sense of smugness. Also in those last scenes, both her wedding ring and his, and it's very unusual for a man to wear a wedding ring in this period. It's been used as a deliberate device. We're aware of their shining wedding rings in both cases. They're quite public. It's kind of interesting the way they're used. Eve. Love that comment. The next three weeks were a fairy tale. I was Cinderella in the last act. Eve had become my sister, lawyer, mother, friend, psychiatrist and cop. The honeymoon was on. And this, of course, is a subsequent comment, isn't it? Just as Karen's voiceover, her soliloquy, is at the end, so is uh, Margot's. You have a contempt for humanity, an inability to love to be loved, an insatiable ambition and talent. What a comment. It's pretty awful, isn't it, really? You can't love. You can't be loved. All you want is ambition and talent. We've talked about the way that she takes them all in. But look at those comments she makes. You know, My heart is here in the theatre. That's what she says in the Sarah Sidney Society. And I love that counter line that Margaret, she's listening to the speech. Wouldn't worry too much about your heart. You could always put that award where your heart ought to be. She's heartless. 
She's the femme fatale. She's the one that is utterly without any compunctions. That's the way it's put up, very much. You're an improbable person, Eve. Well, she is. Could there ever be another person like you? Well, the answer is yes, there could. There'll be many, like Phoebe, at the end. We know that. That's what the film tells us. Look at the way she changes. So, here we have her, you know, playing the innocent, looking down, I should be looking, they're hugging, they're kissing, it's romantic, it's private. Here we have her, the, you know, very much dressed, of course, in Margot's old clothing, like her old suit. She doesn't just look like it, she actually wears her old clothing. It's quite a, quite a irky, actually, isn't it? And here she's pushing Bertie out. You know, Bertie's left holding the tray, and there is Eve organising everything, very businesslike. And look at her attire, businesslike, brisk. She has, the, she has a little satchel under her arm. She's ready for business. Here we see her in costume. In a one, another one of those great moments with, of course, Addison observing while she tries to seduce Bill. But Bill won't have a bar of it. And here we have her in black with a curious dress. It's called a Peter Pan collar. Very fashionable in the 50s and 60s. Usually connected with innocence, but she's wearing it black, isn't she? And look at the way she gets, of course, Karen seated down with her arm around her saying, you'll do as you're told. Manipulating, utterly. Because the men moods, aren't they? One of the things is that she reveals the true self in a very slow but inexorable way. It kind of, you know, kind of continually happens. She worships you like something out of a book. Oh, really? Remember Lloyd's comment? That book's out of print, Karen. Interesting. It's hardly surprising that the only two people who see through her are the people who are kind of the adjuncts to the world of the theatre. Bertie and Anderson. They see through her. There you are. All of a sudden, she's playing Hamlet's mother. What a story. Everything but the bloodhound snappy to the rear end. Um, so she certainly understands. And so she knows she's going to fill her shoes and wear her clothing and her costumes, the whole thing, and her wig even. Addison has certainly been watching her, and like a serpent, she claims her. Now, I want to give you another reading of this. Another way of reading this is this is a Faustian film. Faust, Faust was a really interesting character, and it's a German, uh, it's a German story. It's been used in operas, and it's been used in all sorts of places. So Faust's story is this. Faust wanted great wisdom and knowledge and wonderful times. So he approached the devil and Mephistopheles, his agent, said, all right, you can do what you like, but seven years from now I'm coming back and I'm taking your soul. Now, one way of viewing this is Addison supported her and in a Faustian way he comes back to claim her as the prize, as his rightful thing. You're mine, he says. It's an interesting line. He claims her as his. So it's interesting I've seen it. That comic by Karen, you'd do all of that for a part in a play. Well, yes, I would, because it's my career, my future. She is without ethics, isn't she? She has enough. No scruples. She's amoral. Not immoral, she's amoral. And in that regard, she's just like Addison. Her own ego knows no bounds, does it? You know, she's quite prepared to go in any direction. She gets her fame, but at what cost? I think it's shown quite clearly. What does she refuse to do at the end of the film? 
for the party, which is kind of interesting. The party's supposed, she says, it's not for me, it's for the award. But it's a curious decision, isn't it? She's the, she's the player for the night. They're all going to fall all over her, but she doesn't want it. I think, whereas Margot, everyone notices, and she can really be the life of the party when she wants to. I think there's a real difference here. I think the personal cost is she's embittered. She's destroyed herself. Can she be happy? Can she be happy? And that's, I guess, my comment. After tonight, will belong to me. That that comment, that Faust Mephistopheles comment. Of course, what happens really is Eve is confronted by a worst fear that this is temporal. In other words, this is not lasting. That she will, in fact, be taken over by Phoebe. So the last images are, of course, also Macbethian. They're deliberate takes out of Banquo. So if you know Macbeth, it's the deliberate take of when Macbeth goes to the witches, he actually sees, one of the images he's seen is of Banquo's issue, his children becoming king for generations. He says, well, they go to the crack of time. You know, the irony they have, um, Banquo's direct descendant is Prince Charles. So it's actually it's true. So it's kind of interesting that that turned out to be true, not that Shakespeare knew that was going to happen. Um, she says she wants an award like that more than anything else in the world. That's the allure. And we know her name's not Phoebe either. She's taken that name up, she just thinks it out of the door. And she lies, you notice, straight away. When the award arrives with Addison, she lies. Do you notice that? Because just like Eve, you've got to get rid of all your morals to climb the ladder, it seems. No brighter light has ever dazzled the eye than Eve Harrington. And I guess you have to ask the question, but is that light likely to dim? And is Eve likely to be taken over by Phoebe and Phoebe by other Phoebes along the line? Kind of interesting. Karen. She's elegant, she's socially she's composed, assured, unruffled. She rarely seems to look upset, except, except... Um, when she gets angry with, with uh, Margot and later on in the cub room, in the ladies' lounge of the cub room. She's loyal. That's, that's one of her endearing qualities, even though in real life they hated one another. And after this film, these two actresses never spoke again. They, they developed a real hatred, which continued later on. In an interview with her um, only about five years ago, she said how much, Betty, how rude she was. She would never speak to her again. I actually think... The real person is very like the actress, to be honest. Um, she enjoys the... It's, it's what you call, you know, acquired fame, isn't it? The fame of being with someone famous. It's that, that, the adjunct. She presents herself as a pretty object, doesn't she? And if you think about it, she's kind of like me to be on the arm looking cute. She, he says he would never act without her advice, yet he does. So I'm not sure about that. What does she do all day? I don't know. But we see her painting still life. That's kind of symbolic, isn't it? She can't paint the real thing. She's got to be still life. And going out to lunches. And talking. She doesn't seem to do much else, does she? I'm not even aware of her reading. It's kind of interesting what not aware of her doing. She's childless, and I think that's interesting. Is their marriage barren? Now, you might go, oh, that's a bit harsh. But I'll just point out... You know, um, contraception at this time was very, very limited. There was no contraceptive pill. There were very few ways, and you would have expected they'd be married a while, and you'd expect them to have children. Why don't they? You just meant to ponder that. 
So just consider that. She seems vulnerable. And she's presented as the woman who is the weak woman who doesn't quite know how to keep a man. That comment that she makes, and it's the voiceover, it's a soliloquy, and it's a true soliloquy. I felt helpless, that helplessness you feel, and you have no talent to offer outside of loving your husband. How could I compete? Everything Lloyd loved about me, he got used to long, long ago. The idea that she's going to be pushed aside. Of course, in this respect, Karen echoes Margot. The fear of women being older women, as women age, being displaced by younger women. That, that they're somehow discarded. That their looks have gone, therefore they've got nothing to offer. Um, and, of course, describing uh, Eve as a contemptible little worm is kind of an interesting comment along the way. It's interesting to look at the way in that we see the changes. Now, remember, at the party, at Bill's party, yet again, to try and prove that she's as good as Margot and she will be Margot, the dress that Eve wears is a replica of uh, Margot's dress. It's very similar. It's a copy of it. And here, of course, we've got the way that Eve presents herself as the poor one and has been reassured. But as we listen, and as you listen today, I hope you picked up the way that Eve keeps reminding her, you won't forget the use of it. You know, she sets her up the whole time, and she constantly does this. Here, of course, the story, Margot, Karen, sorry, tries to remain aloof, but it doesn't work, as we see. Bill, not, an, not a little ironic, think about why he's got his surname. Who was Samson? Who was the biblical Samson? Man of strength, names. His strength was in his hair. There you go. Um, so is, is he like that? And Samson also was susceptible to a Delilah, or susceptible to an Eve, if you like, because that was his weakness. He fell for a, uh, he fell for a Delilah who came from the other tribe, who uh, cut with his locks and therefore made him, uh, made him vulnerable. He knows Margot very well, doesn't he? And one of the things we're aware of is that being together a while and there's, there's no... He understands what, what the package is. It's a difficult package, doesn't it? He understands that, but he accepts that. And I think their relationship's real. Now, you'll have read all the things about the fact they were having an affair on set and offset. They, they married just after this. They only married six months after the film was released, or thereabouts. Um, so it was a kind of real love affair taking place. So it's kind of interesting, because if you look at their behaviour, they seem to know each other very well. It's interesting. He understands the world of theatre, but he is very different to Addison and to Lloyd. He remains aloof from it. You know, he recognises it, but I don't think, for him, that is the real world. I think he is an interesting agent. He makes a cameo, acting requires concentration, desire, ambition and sacrifice, such as no other profession demands. He understands that. He doesn't want fame. Even when Eve says you're the most promising, you know, the most famous director everyone knows who you are in Broadway, he kind of pushes that off. He's not taken in by that. He himself is a bridge, isn't he? He's going to go and direct a film in Hollywood and come back. He's a bridge. He's a bridge. I think he is very different to Lloyd. He's a man's man. He's not subtle. He's quite brusque. He's quite direct. And he understands what being a man is. He's presented as a classic man's man. 
The return to Margot, I think, is pretty plausible. Um, you know, I came as soon as I read that piece of filth, Bill's here, babe. It's not disparaging, it's, it's a lover's response. I'm here to protect you, I'll do my bit. And, uh, and then he looks at Karen, you recall, who's sitting, who's standing over here, and she's, and he's, she's up there to go, I look, as the French call it, the trop. In other words, as though I'm part of a, part of a, a, an excess baggage. And he goes, and she goes. So it's quite clear that that's happened. So I just point out, Eve repeatedly has unexpected impacts on people. And for both Margot and Bill, she reaffirms their relationship. She forces Margot finally to make a decision that she should have made to marry him. And also enables her to feel more content. So Eve's impact is not all bad. Not at all. Not at all. The scene in the cub room is amazing. Um, and I think what's interesting is they do. Now remember, Margot does not normally go to the cub room where the elite meet, as she says. This is because she doesn't normally have go bother doing this. This is only for the theatrical people. But notice she, how she's dressed. She wants everyone to notice her, doesn't she? She's Margot Channing. Will everyone be listening? Oh, yes. Will they be watching? Oh, yes. Will it be in tomorrow's paper? Oh, yes. You see that? This is a public statement. This is not going to a press agent, but she may as well. She's doing this as a public statement. When she asks for the second bottle of champagne, which is not big deal to you, it was then. This is, this is done with a lot of aplomb. That moment, you know, where she, she says, she basically saying, up yours, isn't she, to Addison? And he does the same. Notice they both, George? In other words, you don't frighten us. We're not worried by you. And Addison is on the sidelines. She is centre stage. The table's actually in the middle, and Addison's is by the side. It's kind of interesting. Lloyd. I think they've both got a problem. They're a bit naive. They're a bit green in a tough world. He's confident that he's a good playwright, and that is his own identity. But Karen reminds him, and this is interesting, that he would be no one without the Margot Channings making his play great. They're interdependent. He asks what makes the real success of the theatre, and he becomes a victim of a real fun fatale, doesn't he? At the hands of Eve. Um, and uh, I love that line. It's about time the piano realised it had not written the concerto. You know, that, that she's the piano and he's the concerto writer. Really? He's the composer. Um, and of course, he's also the one that alludes to the atmosphere with Bettish. Where is that? Where does he say that? The party, yeah. So he understands that she is playing Lady Macbeth. And you want to look at that Lady Macbeth role. All right, Addison. Often ironic. You don't see him smile that often, do you? That's, that's intentional. We don't see him ever, like, like Karen, he's always dressed to kill. He knows how to dress. He's always playing a part. He has that voice first and last. He is, I think, from mine, a voyeur, an observer, a manipulator, and something slightly shady about him. Because he picks up on things that really are not his end business. You know, pushing the door open with his cane to observe... Uh, Bill being propositioned by Eve. He manages to find out about things that really he should not. He's a good spy, isn't he, really? He sees behind all these things and he juxtaposes Margot and Eve. It is he who does this. And what he says to Margot in the theatre foyer is interesting. He says she, you know, 
that talks about the way she read, it wasn't a reading, it was a performance, it was inspired and so on. But he also says of Margot that she's the great star, so it's kind of clear there's a difference. I am essential to the theatre. It is Addison from the start who drips with his band at Brandon Venom. Several times there are references made to venom and poison. So, what? And that's picked up a number of times. We all come to, our, to this world with our little ego, with our ego equipped with little horns. If we don't blow them, who else will? Well, that's kind of true. And he himself is associated. Now, it's often said of theatre critics that they are, um, you know, sort of would want to be kind of actors who didn't make it. We're not clear. I think he's a pretty good actor in the lot that he does. He is a pretty good actor. And I think he does pick up a great deal behind the scenes. It's, uh, it's interesting how we see him. The observer, the confronter, he deliberately confronts Margot with the, with the truth, and look, this still shows it. Where he confronts her, you're, you, you're mine, you're not marrying anyone else, you're marrying me. And then when he slaps her quite vehemently, follows her into the bedroom, she tries to push him out, he won't go. And there, he pulls her back, she says, I won't go, and he said, you'll do as you're told. And it's the first time and the only time we see her in tears, broken, all the, all the trappings have been taken away. And he basically says, you'll do as you're told. That's why I said, I think for me, that's a Faustian moment. And you might see it that way, but I think it's one way of seeing it. They're both ruthless. They both want power. Power is a wonderful drug. And there's another Shakespearean idea. Because all of the great tragedies are about power and control. Maybe he has one good quality. He doesn't lie to us. We know what he's really like. It's one way of seeing He adds up, uses wit. Addison do it. He adds up with wit, does he not? Um, he's a consummate actor, maybe. He is the indispensable, and he is right in that regard. I think he collects people. He collects people around him. He claims he's a critic, but I think he directs things. He directs the backstage operations. It's a serpent. If you think of a serpent, a serpent is malevolent, evil, dangerous, vindictive, and has a venom. And, of course, what we know is never loyal to anyone else but himself. He's not loyal to her. He's loyal to himself. She is part of his world. She belongs to him, he says. I'm Addison DeWitt. I'm nobody's fool, least of all yours. It's important we talk now killer to killer. So, we might argue that that is what's going on. This is this Mephistopheles moment. You know, killer to killer. It's a great line, isn't it? All right, so let's think about some of the uh, values and issues. Is the theatre simply, at the outset I talked about this motif, M-O-T-I-F, of the theatre, is this a reflection of the world it aspires to present? Is the theatre an escapist world, you know, where the lights go up and we get little old southern bells and southern bowls playing on, playing on some sort of false work? Is that what this is about? Actors reducing their own capacity to know who they are. They're supposedly playing roles they don't know who they are. Um, and that's certainly there. If you see any old um, late interviews with Betty Davis, she looks like a parody of herself. She's quite ghastly looking. 
Um, and I think there's an element of that that's true. Identity can be shaped. How is it shaped? Success is not forever. It's transitory. You know, you can't guarantee that it will keep going forever. Can you buy happiness? Love. Loyalty. We need to value it. I think this, this film is very much looking at loyalty and love. After all, it's interesting that even though they had the big bust-up, as it were, as friends, Lloyd and Karen are happy to come back to be with um, Margot and Bill as they announce their marriage. Friendship. If you have a worldview that is kind of insular, and if you like, closes the doors, it is a microcosm, you might destroy yourselves. How do you balance one's life? Huh. I've asked that myself. Um, how do you balance one's life? How do you get the balance right between your career and your work and pleasure and enjoyment? And that, of course, that point's picked up a great deal in the film. After all, at Bill's party, all of the people there are theatre people or film people. It's kind of an, in, it's an insular world. It's an introspective world. So you might want to use that term, introspective. It's certainly true. Like minds often attract killer to killer, or in other ways too. What is it that attracts Margot and Bill, you might ask? Obviously, there's often that view of um, those who live by the sword die by the sword. This film clearly tells us Eve has destroyed herself. She sold her soul to the devil, and in the process, she herself will fall because there will be a feeding waiting to take over. Evil often begets only evil. Evil is all around us. Those who are self-serving in society we need to watch. We have a choice between acting with morality, behaving appropriately in integrity, or doing the opposite. And we need to deal with consequences. Women, this film would tell us, Monkabeers would tell us, women find it harder to get success and contentment. Now, you might say this is a dated film, and I would agree, but I think this point is probably equally true today. That trying to get the balance right is often harder for women than for men. If you think, if you think that you, you know, success, in, success justifies anything, you are thinking very dangerously. The end need not justify the means. And those who flatter our egos, remember at the outset... Margot is flattered. They are flattered. Eve knows which buttons to push. It's a really dangerous kind of thing. So don't allow that. Now, when we think about the assessment criteria for text response, remember we've got topic and text, we've got coherence, we've got expression. <coughs> topic and text, coherence, expression. Now, we've got to think about the things that you need to pull together as you prepare to write. Topic focus, really understanding what's there. The relevant textual knowledge. Now, just be careful. This film, think about it as a film. Think about the structural elements, the bookends, the ways that we have the voiceovers, the way we have commentary, soliloquies, sides, if you will, and, of course, some fantastic lines. Make sure your essays have those clear topic sentences and so on. Don't just be, um, and consider that in a world of the text, particularly here, think about the world of the theatre and to what extent that reflects a wider world. Obviously, the inner world of the text you need to look at, go beyond Margot, 
go beyond Addison, go beyond Eve. There are others to think about. Um, and your own sense of what the, top, the, re- the actual text is saying. You really need some way to pull together what this is. Because I think the title is a bit ironic. Is this really all about Eve and what she achieved? Well, no, it's because she represents something else. And she represents a different message. That's one way of reading it. And you need to resolve the whole topic. So let's just give you a few topics. Um, there are a couple here that I'd uh, point out. This has some fantastic lines. And, you know, you really need to learn 25 or 30 of them, some really good ones. I'm just the carbon copy when you can't find the original. It's one of the things that, that Eve says. Um, is that our view? Is she the carbon copy? Is she really the carbon copy? That's the question. You recall that when um, just the night of the cub room, Margot has just been in age in the wood again, hasn't she? And you recall what, the one time she shows arrogance, she said, I, I was brilliant, she says. I was brilliant. So she's still got it in her. She can still pull a performance out that everyone goes, my God, where did that come from? It's, you know, there. So you think of any actor or actress playing in a long run, a long series, that they come back to it later, you know, that they do it, and suddenly they can just pull one out, of the, a rabbit out of a hat. Um, that's kind of what she does. Um, there never was, there never will be another like you. Is that the message? Could there be another Eve, or is Eve kind of a type that we might see again? How is Eve drawn into webs? Sorry, how is the viewer drawn into Eve's web of deceit? If you think about the film, now I know it's hard to this but when you first see it. At the beginning, we too are taken into Eve's artifice, aren't we? Oh, what's her story? Oh, she looks a bit sad. Oh, she must be really stage drunk. You see, we're doing the same. And it's only, I would argue, when we're on the stairs, you hear her a bit, you think, wait a minute, that's a bit odd. What's she talking about? What's she talking about being on stage for? What's she talking about the love coming out of the football? What's she talking about that for? And then, of course, she snaps back. That scene on the stairs, you need to look at really, really closely. It's an important scene. Um, the real danger of theatrical is to ever believe that it's more than a temporary representation of the world at large. Is it more? Is it more? I hope that's kind of cemented or clarified or added some things. Any questions, comments? I know you're really dry. I understand that. Anything you want to ask? Has that helped? Can you some slightly different things? Good. All right. Well, good luck and right on. Thank you. Thank you. As with all of these revision sessions, if you have any queries or questions, direct them back uh, to your English teacher or direct them to me if you sort of go home and think about something you're not quite sure on, on how to interpret it. Um, yes, um, I think the, the question, we get the essay topics? Yeah, 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 so we'll get those topics in our okay. yeah. All right, folks, thank you. Context uh, revision next Monday morning and then language analysis next Tuesday. Have a look at the schedule. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>